0: Be in Hosea chapter two, starting in verse two. When we talk about a closed door, we might see that as a missed opportunity. Have you ever been disappointed when there was a closed door? Figuratively speaking, you you saw an opportunity, but then that opportunity was shut to you and you felt like you missed out on something. Um, And even when later we look back and we say, that was for the best, that was for the best that that door on that relationship closed or that opportunity closed, Um, we can still be disappointed. We can even be angry because we wanted to go through that door. We wanted that experience. And what helps us to navigate the closed doors and also to pass through those open doors that God has for us is to know that God is the one who opens doors and he's the one who shuts them. Jesus said in Revelation 3, 7, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. If you knew that Jesus was the one who shut that door that you wished was open, would it change the way you viewed that closed door? If it was him doing it, you'd be like, okay, I'm all right with Jesus doing that. Um, We can be so weary in looking for the open door rather than looking to the one who has the keys to the door, the one who opens the door and that no one can shut. And when he shuts the door, No one can open. Jesus is the door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one that we follow. And through faith in him, we find all we need for life every day. In Hosea chapter 2, God is speaking in first person towards, he's making this parable or an illustration of himself as a faithful husband and Israel as an unfaithful wife. Uh, Last week we talked about Hosea the prophet, how he was told by God to marry a prostitute. And it was a picture of uh, how Israel had sold themselves and were giving themselves away to all these false gods that they weren't faithful to God. And uh, they were worshiping the golden calves in Dan and Bethel, the high places, instead of obeying the law to sacrifice in Jerusalem. They had departed from God, they weren't walking and honoring him, they were following after their kings, their kings that were wicked, and um, all these abominable practices were happening rather than obeying and trusting God, the king of kings. They weren't looking to God, they were looking to the king and to the nations around them. Um, I'm getting some interesting sounds out of the speakers, Are you guys hearing that? Man. Did you hear that? Okay, it's weird. It's just (laughs) tripping me out. I'm like, who is there? There's like somebody behind me. Woo, okay. So because of their sin, God was going to bring judgment. He was going to bring judgment upon them. Uh, And he said in the first chapter, I'm no longer going to show mercy to Israel. But we find in chapter two that it was only temporary. He was going to uh, withhold that mercy to show the mercy in the end. So Hosea two, starting in verse two. It says, bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Strong words we're going to read in this chapter. And God uses this picture of the husband who's faithful, his wife who's been unfaithful, and he has charges. He says, I've got a case to make against you. I've been faithful, I've loved, I've protected, I've provided for you, but you've sought other lovers. You haven't been faithful to the agreement we made that you would be my people and I would be your God. The only God, not just one God among many gods, but I'm your God. I'm the one that you're to love and trust. And Israel was living like a wife estranged from her husband. It was like a husband who—it wasn't like a husband who suspects his wife is being unfaithful. She was being unfaithful, and she was being very uh, open about it. We're hearing worship now, for some reason, but there's no one here. Okay, sweet. I'm just going to turn this off. It's coming out of the, uh, the foldback for the drums. Gotcha. See these things. Thank you for your patience. Okay. Israel has no shame. It was like she was home for dinner and had no, no problem admitting that she had a date at 7 and another date at 10, and then over the weekend, she was going with an old flame from high school to Bali. Like she was just being really overt about her, her idolatry. And God said, put away your heart of the trees, put away your adulteries, the, the talisman, the charms that you hang around your neck, that you keep close to your heart, get rid of that. Because when you would strip yourself before your lovers, you would leave that on, but you've forgotten about me. You haven't been faithful to me at all." And so he's saying, you wouldn't tolerate this behavior. You wouldn't approve of this behavior, but this is how you're acting towards me. I'll make you like a wilderness, a dry land. I'll slay you with thirst. And that's her just due. It's written in Leviticus 20.10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. So that was in the law that the children of Israel agreed to. They said, we're gonna keep the word of the Lord. We're gonna follow that. But God didn't deal with Israel according to her sins. He didn't haul her immediately before the magistrates and say, I'm done with this relationship. He said, here's a warning. This is what's going to happen if you continue down this path of sin. He sent for hundreds of years, priests, um, Levites, prophets, to teach people of God and his will. They would have hauled their wives before the courts. They would have had them stoned if they had behaved in this manner, but God was long-suffering towards his people, and he loved them. He wasn't giving up on them, and God doesn't give up on us. They were looking for intimacy, satisfaction, pleasure from illicit loves rather than rejoicing in God. And because they wandered from God, they felt empty. They felt dry. They were thirsty. They were looking for something to satisfy their thirst, but nothing was happening. Nothing was helping. Could you please turn to Proverbs chapter 5, 15 through 18? And this is advice that Solomon offered his son concerning sex, concerning desires of the flesh. Remember, this is a picture that God's using to illustrate his people's behavior towards him. But Solomon made it personal and said, son, this is how you're to behave towards your spouse. And really, it's how we're to behave towards God as well. In Proverbs 5, 15, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only for your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. If we want to seek sexual satisfaction outside of God's plan for marriage, we find ourselves increasingly dry and thirsty. The world sold us this lie that sex is a need, that it's a natural right, when it's a gift from God to be exercised within the confines of biblical marriage. And this example of the unfaithful wife is just a picture of how God's people had departed from him. And um, so in, in those relationships, let's remain pure towards our spouse, most importantly towards God, that we're not looking to satisfy ourselves outside of him. Back to Hosea 2, verse 3. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Daytime TV of years past, it would have the woman who had fallen pregnant and the three potential men who could be the father and they'd have this DNA reveal. Right, And the one who was the father, that's the one who was required to provide uh, the support for the, the mother and the child that would be born. Only the genetic father is responsible. And God's saying, I'm not gonna be held responsible for the fruit of your idolatry. This is not mine. This has nothing to do with me. Uh, I'm not gonna show mercy on the fruit of those illicit relationships that you've had. And Israel, they were sacrificing to these Baals, or these idols, whom they believed controlled the weather that would bring the the crops and cause the crops to grow and fruitfulness, and they said, well, if we sacrifice to all these idols, well, then we'll have the rain, and we'll have wine and corn and the things we need for life. They, They even sacrificed their children to deities that would supply them wealth and fertility, prosperity. And they imagined that they provided all these things. Notice that all those my's there. My bread, my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, my drink. The worship of idols is purely selfish. It was all about what they could get. And that's true uh, with idolatry in our own lives. If there's something that an idol offers us that we love, that we like and enjoy. We live in a westernized culture. We don't offer money and incense and Uh, or food to a deity. We don't place a lot of stock in amulets and charms and talismans to protect us. Now, some do, but typically that's not the way we see things. But every idol we have, that's something that we look to to satisfy us, to meet a need that God has promised to supply, a place in our lives of authority that only God deserves. Um, It's because we love that thing. There are passing pleasures of sin that seem to provide what we need for a time. We are left dry, but there's an allurement to it. There's something that's attractive in idolatry, Um, like vanity. We like the attention that vanity supplies. We love the power of money because we can do what we want. And what would God do because of their ways? He says, I'm going to hedge you in with thorns. The more that Israel sought to gratify their lust and their desires and the more they sacrificed to these idols, trying to get the better harvests and the prosperity, the more trapped they would be. She'd be unable to find the very thing that she's looking for and perhaps the money continued to multiply, but the satisfaction or the security she hoped she would have from it, it would be elusive. God would close the doors and cover them over with thorns that would pierce body and soul. It's like they were groping around in the dark for these doorknobs that and just being stuck with thorns. It was painful. It was fruitless. It was hopeless. Paul wrote of the peril of greed, where they say, my, my, my. It reminded me of 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. It says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in per- destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So that desire for wealth, that greed for gain is something that pierces us through. It causes us sorrow and pain. God says, you're gonna chase your lovers, but you won't catch them. I'm gonna see to that. I'm going to close those doors. I'm going to hedge you in. I'm going to confine you in that painful place of lack. And we'll see there was a reason why he would do that. Because their fruitless search would prompt them to return to God. That they would come to their senses and say, it was so much better when we just served God. It was so much better when we trusted God alone. Instead of trying all these idols and prostituting ourselves on the high places. She thought that the bread, the water, the linen, the oil, that was the product of her effort and the benefit of her lovers, all those false gods, but they were all gifts from God. God's like, they didn't realize that I'm the one who gave them everything. Everything they have is because I gave it to them. I gave her grain, new, wild, and oil. I multiplied her silver and gold which they prepared for those idols. So they prepared the very things that he gave them to bless them and to cause them to be um, healthy and secure. They, They turned that right around and they made that gold into an image they wore and thinking that that would protect them rather than God who gave them everything. How can we relate this to us? Well, God gives us the power to acquire wealth. And then we find our security in wealth. We find great pride in what we have. God gives us all the time we have, but we don't have time for God. God gives us friends, and then we confide in them rather than going to God first. God gives us a spouse, but we seek to find sexual intimacy elsewhere. He gives us entertainment and leisure and we make it our chief end and our primary aim is to get to that thing, that hobby that we love. We fear men, but not the God who created men. We complain and grieve over what we don't have rather than thanking God for all that he's given us because everything we have is a gift from him. So we have a problem with idolatry too, naturally. We're drawn to worship anything but God. So God, what does he do? He graciously begins to hedge us in with thorns. And our vain attempts to to satisfy ourselves with things that aren't him, it pierces us through with sorrow and disappointment. Disappointment should reveal how much we take our eyes off of God and onto everything else. The things that disappoint you it's because there's an expectation now that hasn't been met. And has God failed in anything that he's promised? Has he ever fallen short of the, the promises that he's given us? No, there's no disappointing thing about God. We're disappointed because we seek things other than God. For years, God allowed his people to, to sell themselves, but he would hedge them in. Because, and he did it because he loved them. They hated it. Because they had their lovers, and they wanted their lovers. But God was going to slowly bring them to a place of them deciding, I need God alone. He's the only one I need. Verse 9. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. All Israel had and all we have really is God's. He says, I'm going to take away my things. I've given you those things, but those are mine. I'm going to take them back. And again, so that they would recognize that he was the one supplying their needs. It wasn't their idols, it wasn't their lovers. The gods of the neighboring nations were weak. God is strong. He says, You're in my hand. I'm not going to let you go. I am going to hedge you in, I'm going to expose your poverty. And the things that you take such delight in, the feast days, the things that he gave them, right? New moons, Sabbaths, all these, point, all these feasts that were once a place of jubilation and the people would gather together and it's like a family reunion where everyone goes back to Jerusalem. He says, when you do that, there'll be no joy in it. There'll be no happiness in it because you've given yourself to all these other idols. Those jubilees, they'll feel empty. They'll feel pointless. Now, this isn't written only for the sake of Israel, but for us, I think it well describes this picture, some seasons of our walk with Jesus, that we can feel dry. We can feel like we're in a wilderness, that we are fruitless, that our attempts to, to do things that are productive and enjoyable seems to dry up. And we wonder, why are we even doing this? What's the point? It also shows us the things that God graciously gives. He can take away for his good purposes. Even when we say, I don't deserve such treatment. We don't deserve it. It's all of grace. God could have left those doors open through which if they walked, they would never return to him, but hedged them in. He blocked those doors. He closed those doors so that they might return to him. Verse 12, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest and beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, says the Lord. Israel saw those fruitful vines and fig trees as her rightful payment for her pursuit of idols. Like, I, hey, I sacrificed, I did all these things, that's what I deserve. I have an expectation that I should, I'm entitled to those things. I'm entitled to good things because of my piety in not only following God, but serving these other gods. But the things that she had, they were from God, so that her loyalty and her affections were misplaced. And in response, God's gonna say, everything that you think that you have I'm gonna make barren those uh, vines. They're just gonna be overgrown. It's gonna be part of a forest. The, the beasts of the field, they're gonna consume them. You're gonna lose that fruitfulness. Fruit that's really mine, I'm gonna allow that to dry up in your life. I'm gonna punish you for the burning of the incense, for seeking those other gods. And he's like, you, you're, you're resembling the a young lady that's dolling yourself up for a night out on the town to allure strangers with your beauty and wealth when you're married to me. And I put a ring on it, like you're mine, you're my bride, but yet you're, you're looking for other lovers. You're not faithful to me. And this is a really disturbing picture of adultery that God's painting here. They didn't give people a free pass for adultery in Israel in those days. Remember what happened when uh, Judah um, found out his daughter-in-law who was widowed, was with child. He said, let her be burnt. Like, there was no discussion. He's like, she's been unfaithful, death. Under the law, yes. But he was the one guilty. He was the one who had slept with her. They, these people, the children of Israel, professed absolute allegiance to God. They claimed to be God's people, and they claimed to follow him but they had those divided loyalties and affections. If their wives had behaved as they had, they would have treated them cruelly. But God is not cruel. God's long-suffering and patient. He's merciful and gracious. He's compassionate. His mercies are new every morning. He's not vindictive. He informed them of the sin. He warned them of the consequences. He actually explained what he was doing before it happened so that they would repent and come to him. We hate it when God says, those things in your life that you love, I'm going to take those away for a season. And we just, we're shattered by that. But God has this purpose in mind, restoration with him. Check this out, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Acor as a door of hope and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Instead of throwing her headlong off a cliff, instead of stoning her, he's like, I will allure her. And people read this, the commentator's like, whoa, this is scandalous. Like God's gonna say, I'm gonna allure her of all things. Like not warn, threaten, coerce. Force, but allure. I am going to be attracted to her. I am going to be attractive to her. That word is to persuade, invite, to make room for. So it's like, I've made all this space for you. This is your space with me. Why don't you come and spend time with me? Earlier on, it said, I'll make her a wilderness. Now he says, I will bring her into the wilderness. This goes back to the time when Israel first followed God, the presence when they went through the wilderness after leaving Egypt. And for 40 years, they learned to rely upon God and to trust him for their food and their clothing, for their protection, for everything. So he's like, I want to take our relationship back to the beginning. When you first learned to trust me, when you learn to follow me, and I want to go back there and I want to spend time with you. Instead of scolding or harsh words, he says, I'm going to speak words of comfort. I know that you've suffered. You've suffered because of your choices. As a consequence for your sin, you have hurt yourself. You have pierced yourself through. You are dry. You are empty. You are confused. But let me just look at me. Listen to me. I've got a place for you. Let's go back to the beginning. You've suffered but I'm gonna to restore to you the vineyards. You're gonna to sing to me again like you used to because you were just so happy. And he makes a significant reference to the Valley of Achor as a door of hope that where she would be fruitful and sing. Achor, it means trouble. That's where Achan's sin was divinely revealed and judged. So after 40 years in the wilderness, the children of Israel, they passed through the Jordan They go into the land of promise. And Jericho is this massive stronghold with huge fortifications, basically the impenetrable uh, city, massive walls. You could have two chariots side by side on the top of these walls, pretty thick. And he said, circle the city for six days, one time each, seventh day, seven times, and then blow the trumpets. I will cause the walls to fall flat and you go inside, but don't take up the spoil because it's the first fruits of the land. As we read in Joshua 6:17, it says, Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So God's like, I'm giving you the victory, but the spoils go to me in this case. Because if you take these spoils to yourself, you'll bring a curse into the camp. So the children of Israel, they obey the Lord. He gives them the victory. They're celebrating. There's this little town called Ai. And they said, oh, it's just small. We'll go take it out. And they sent a few thousand people and they run. They're filled with fear. 30 some odd people die. And Joshua Joshua's like tearing his clothes saying, Lord, what has happened? This is terrible. And he says, get up off the ground. There's sin in the camp. You got to deal with that. So they went and cast lots. And it turned out there was one man named Achan. He and his family, they had stolen the stuff. They lied about it. They hid it in the tent. And Joshua Joshua's like, confess before everyone. What, what did you do? Why did you bring trouble on us? And those who concealed the theft, those who lied, they were stoned and burned with fire. And they heaped this big pile of rocks on them. Now, it doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? A door of hope. He's saying, you remember how it felt to have that curse lifted. You had a curse over your family and over the whole nation because you transgressed. Now, the children of Israel, they had transgressed in following after idols. And if they would deal with their sin, if they would confess their sin, if they would throw away the idols that they pursued and follow the Lord only, there was reconciliation. There was hope for them. They were not doomed to destruction or failure or fruitlessness or dryness or wandering. They could enter in to the victory and the life that God had promised to them. That land flowing with milk and honey, he would give them and they would walk in it all throughout the land and receive their inheritance. So if Israel, this door of hope, he's like, I'm opening this door of hope. If you will repent, you can be reconciled to me. No curse. A new life. You remember that feeling when you knew that your sins were forgiven because you trusted in Jesus Christ. Do you remember that day? Many days since where it's, the grace of God, not because I did anything, but because he loves me, he's given me a new life. I've been born again. I've been washed clean. I've been filled with the Holy Spirit. We can lose that joy. We can forget. So he says, go back to the beginning. Think about our relationship and how it started, how you used to trust me. Trust me like that now when things are hard and you're in pain. Look to me. Verse 16, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air and the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God foresaw a day when Israel would return to him, and Baal means master. They had all these cruel masters they served, all these idols that always took, but never gave them anything. And God says, you're not gonna call me my master anymore. You're gonna call me my man or my husband. There would be that love and care and affection that I have towards you. You'll receive that and understand that I love you. God didn't see Israel as his property, a slave to boss around, to snap at, to manipulate or control. He loved them and he wanted them to choose him because they loved him. God would again protect her from the devouring beasts and the enemies. He says the bow and the sword, that's gonna be broken from the land. You're gonna lie down and rest. Jesus is the good shepherd and sheep do not lay down unless they are totally contented. He says, you're gonna lie down in those pastures that I prepared by those rivers of water. Isn't that where you wanna be in a place of safety and rest? It's only in Jesus. It's only through God and faith in him. So God, he was willing to commit himself wholly to people unworthy of trust. And he says, I'm gonna betroth you to myself. And in the Jewish tradition, there's two parts of a wedding or a marriage where there would be the betrothal. That's where the legal... Document is signed, the ketubah, and they would also give a dowry. So because the, the wife was going to the husband's home, the husband would have to pay a dowry because that wife, she did a lot of work in the house and in the, the community, and so they would compensate for taking that daughter away. So they would decide on how many camels or donkeys or whatever their payment was in those days. And uh, God said, I will give you a dowry He says, righteousness, justice, loving kindness, mercy, and faithfulness. And we know many other things besides, right? But he says, this is my promise to you. I will be faithful to you. I will be merciful to you. I will be righteous towards you. Amazingly, God brought charges against Israel for her adultery, but was determined to have her. He wasn't going to put her away. He wasn't going to divorce her. His betrothal would stand so that she would know that he loved her. Verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day, I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. In that day when Israel would forsake her idols and return to him, he says, I'm gonna resupply that bountiful grain and wine and oil. In many parts of the law, so Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God had said, these are the blessings that will come upon you if you obey me. But also, if you choose to disregard the law and forsake me, these are the curses that will come upon you. Now, praise the Lord. Jesus is the end of the curse to all those who believe, but they were still under the covenant of law. And in Deuteronomy twenty-eight twenty-three, he said, this is what's going to happen if you choose to forsake me. And your heavens, which are over your head, shall be bronze, and the earth, which is under you, shall be iron." Because of the curse of sin, they would look up for refreshing rain, and it would be like hot, red sun, just baking the earth. And he says the earth is going to be like iron. You try to dig into it, try to grow anything in it, forget about it. It's not going to respond to you. It would yield no food. But God would speak if the people returned to him and caused there to be this communication. So he's like, you cry out for food, the earth will answer. The earth will supply the food. The heavens will answer. The heavens will supply the rain. And I'm going to orchestrate it all. I'm going to ensure that you have all that you need for life. And we know we need food and water to live, right? But really, we need God because he supplies those things. He supplies everything that we need. Every blessing comes from him. Verse 23 said that God would sow Israel for himself throughout the earth, and have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. That's where we're coming into the picture now. Pretty cool. Because this has been fulfilled through the life of Jesus and the nation of Israel. Jesus said before his death that he was like a grain of wheat that would fall to the ground. And if he died, he would produce much grain. So if grain remains outside of the ground, it remains alone. But if it goes into the ground, it can produce much. Jesus he died he went into the ground and through his death and resurrection those who trust in Christ can be born again have new life where there was no life we were dead in sins but now we have come to Christ and uh, the gospel came to the Jews first the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Jews the church in Jerusalem the persecution it caused a scattering and the good news of Jesus Christ was sown into the hearts of Gentiles throughout the whole world And the the good news has come to us, and we have received it. Those who had not obtained mercy, those who were not God's people, we were aliens from the commonwealth of God, we have received the good news of salvation by grace through faith. And we have been adopted into his family as his own through the gospel. Hear what Jesus says in John 10, 15, and 16. He says, as the father knows me, even so I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. At the time, Israel was not behaving like God's people. Israel was not behaving like a betrothed wife to her husband. And he's saying, not only will my people be restored to me, but I'm going to bring other sheep from another fold. They're not of my fold. People that are outside Israel, I'm going to bring them in and make them one with me. We know that Jesus is the head of the church. And that wall of separation, that enmity between Jew and Gentile has been broken. And we've now been made one in Jesus Christ by grace. So we've been adopted into the family of God. This valley of Acor, it was a door of hope to God's people if they would repent. And you know, God allows trouble in our lives. He allows us to suffer. And even if God is hedging us in with thorns, it is to direct us to the door that's always open for us, Jesus Christ. Could you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10, verse 7? As long as we walk this earth, Jesus is open to those who repent and trust in him. To all who come to him, he will not turn aside. Now we know that our lives on earth are temporary. And if we do not go through that open door now, by choice, there will be a time when that door will close. The chance for salvation will be gone because we've been, we have not been forgiven. We're dead in trespasses and sins. But even if the heavens are bronze to you, if the earth seems to be iron, there is salvation and deliverance and healing in Jesus today for you. When you go, I don't think so. Well, that's what God is saying. You can disagree with him. I pray that you don't disagree with God. John 10, verse seven. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So the question I feel led to ask is, are you experiencing the rest and contentment in the pasture of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. This world that we're living in, these bodies that we inhabit for a season, they can rob us of the sweetness of the fellowship that we could have with God. And we can turn aside to all these different things that distract us, that disappoint us, that are wounding us inside. We can turn our affections away from our source of life, Jesus. Now praise God, he loves us enough to close doors and to hedge us in with thorns and to even allow our own lusts to prick us and to wound us so that we might come to our senses like the prodigal who it took, it took losing everything and feeding pigs and realizing that the pig food looked really appetizing. That was when the penny dropped and he says, "Hey." It was so much better when I was just living at my dad's house as his son. Maybe I'll go back and and just beg to be his servant, because after all I've done, he's not going to take me back. Well, he was right, and he was wrong. He was right that it was better when he was at his dad's house. He was wrong about the fact that his dad wasn't just willing to begrudgingly have him back as a slave, but he wanted him back as a son. And he was waiting for him, he was looking for him, he ran out to him, he hugged him, he kissed him, he gifted things to him, and he celebrated his return. God has called us with an everlasting love, and he has made a covenant through the blood of Christ of righteousness, justice, loving kindness, mercy, and faithfulness. And this is his promise to you if you'll come to him, if you'll trust him. Can you identify with Israel being dry and empty? Are you trapped in that downward spiral, just feeling like, I'm really trapped in a situation There's no way out for me? I want to say, let's not kid ourselves to identify with the husband in this story. We are all the wayward wife whose only hope for life or a future is returning to her first love who rediscovers fruitfulness, peace, and joy in him. Jesus is the door through whom we enter to life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are mighty, you are wise. Thank you for your long-suffering nature, your compassion on us. Thank you that you love us enough to close doors, to even hedge us in with thorns, to give us the opportunity to repent and be saved, to be healed. Lord, I pray in each one of us, you would quicken great faith to trust you, to believe your word even in the midst of pain and uncertainty when when we have looked everywhere without hope. Lord Jesus, be glorified in each one of our lives. Cause our eyes to be turned to you again. Help us to lay aside the cares of this life, the worries, the discontent, the disappointments, and to return to our first love, to return to your side. Thank you, Lord, for this picture, and thank you for the fulfillment through Jesus Christ, that you are the door of hope through whom we enter into new life, forgiveness, and healing. And I pray, Lord, if there are people struggling today, I pray that you administer these words to their hearts and that they would respond in faith and great joy to return to you and to sing your praises once again. In Jesus' name, amen.